We are going to be in Psalm 11 tonight. If you'll take your Bibles out and be opening them to Psalm 11. It's good to be back with you all. Uh, as you're turning in your Bibles to Psalm 11, I want to begin by asking, a, asking you all a question. How do you feel about the, the current state of the world around you? Now that I have your attention... The follow-up question to that is, how much do you personally feel like you can do about the state of the world around you? I mean, I think for many of us, there are things in the world, perhaps for all of us, that we could point to and say, this, this particular thing or this trend or, or whatever, this really bothers me, I find it troubling. But at the end of the day, how much of that bothersome thing is within your control to, to fix, to do something about. I think as Americans, that can be a, a tough pill to swallow because we are conditioned to have a say in things, to, to be able to have our preferences and our choices and, and to have things the way that we want them. And yet the reality is, as we look at the world around us, so much of the time, that's just not what we get when it comes to the big picture. It really shouldn't bother us as Christians, though, because as Christians, the whole idea of having our way and having our preferences is really antithetical to what being a disciple of Jesus is about in the first place. Really, we are supposed to be people who are used to deferring to others, to deferring to our, our king, primarily. Uh, but it's amazing to me, and this is just as true in my life as it is in the lives of others uh, around me, it's amazing how quickly I get bent out of shape when things don't go the way that I want them to. And what we're going to talk about tonight is this idea of what happens and, and specifically how do we respond when we, look around, uh, when we look at the world around us and we see foundations that seem like they're being destroyed, that seem like they're crumbling. And that could be on a, a national level, it could be on a, an international level, it could be on a personal level, on a family level. There are times, as we're going to see uh, from the life of King David tonight, there are times in everybody's life, I don't care who you are, even for the king of Israel, where there will be things in your life that will make you feel like your foundations are crumbling or being tested at the very least. So David's going to say some things about a, one such occasion in his life in this psalm, in Psalm 11, that hopefully will help equip us to know how to deal with those moments in our own lives. And I want to just jump right into this text and read the first three verses together and just try to get a sense for what's going on in David's life as he says these words. Psalm 11, beginning in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Stop right there for now. And what I want to notice with you, first of all, is who is writing this? We pointed out right off the bat that this is a psalm of David. We're going to look at four things just in these first few verses here that are going to serve as an outline for this psalm. Number one, we're going to see the circumstances in which David writes this psalm. And we're going to notice, second of all, that David is going to receive, based on those circumstances, 
he's going to receive counsel from people close to him about how he should respond to the circumstances. And then those who are counseling him are going to give reasons for their counsel. So we're going to look at first the circumstances, second the counsel, third the reason for the counsel, and then finally what is David's response. Those are the four things we'll start by noticing in this psalm. First of all, the circumstance here is that this is a time in David's life when he was afraid for his life. We don't have all of the details of this. We can speculate about this perhaps, but there are people actively trying to take David's life as we read in verse two. The circumstance of his life was this. The wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Something was going on in David's life that was threatening his very survival. And so the counsel that David was receiving in light of, the, uh, in light of this, this circumstance is in verse 1. Everybody around him is saying, David, you need to flee as a bird to your mountain. Based on what's going on in your life, because there are people who are trying to kill you, the best thing, the only thing for you to do right now, David, is just to get out of here. Just run away for now, find refuge in a, a safe place, and then you can live to fight another day. And the reason for that that they give here in the text is, is this question that they ask in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What do you suppose they're saying by that? I, I think there are a couple of options, at least a couple of possibilities for what this means. One could be that they're saying, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do in the sense that David is the foundation of the nation? He's the king. And if David gets taken out, if the wicked that are bending the bow and trying to take his life, if they succeed in that, then what are the righteous in the kingdom going to do? What's left for them? Because their foundation, their king, is, is not going to be left standing. So they're kind of wanting David to flee and to protect himself so that in his refuge or in his safety, they can have safety. It's also possible that what they're saying here, though, is that the foundations have already crumbled. They, they're already being destroyed. And it's the whole reason that David's in this predicament to begin with. And so what are the righteous going to do about that? David it doesn't matter how righteous you are, the reality of, of your life right now is that the foundations on which you built it are not there anymore. And because those foundations are destroyed, what's left to do except to flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, what's remarkable about this, and where we're going to turn our attention here in a few moments, is David's response. Because in the face of this counsel, he does something different. He goes in a different direction. And his response is, in the Lord, I take refuge. And as the psalm goes, he turns to all these people who are giving him advice and counsel to flee. And he says, how can you say this to me? Because what I know to be true and what I'm going to believe in is this idea that my refuge isn't going to come from running away. It's not going to come from a mountain. It's going to come from the Lord. Now, just pause for a moment and just think about the times in David's life when this may have been written. It doesn't tell us anything other than the fact that this was a psalm of David. It's not one of those biographical psalms that has details about when, when people think it was written. Um, and because of the ambiguity of that, because of the lack of information, people have speculated about when David might have written this. 
Some people think that it would have been when early on in his life when he was fleeing from Saul. You know, after he's been anointed king by Samuel, and yet Saul is still on the throne, Saul sees David as a threat, and so Saul's chasing David all around the countryside trying to take his life. So David's hiding, from, he's going from place to place. He even spends a period of time uh, in the, the land of the Philistines trying to, to find refuge. And so some people suggest that this was the occasion in which, or on which, during which, David wrote this psalm. Others think it was specific to the time when, as he's fleeing from Saul, he went to find refuge um, from the priests. Remember when he goes to the priest and he's given, uh, he's, he has all of his men with him and he's given the, the bread from the priest to eat and he's given the sword of Goliath. And remember as that story plays out, there's, there's one of Saul's allies who knows where David is. It's a guy named Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg goes back and he tells Saul and Saul kind of flips out and says, all right, everybody, Who's going to stand up and go, um, go take care of this problem? Who's going to fight against these priests who have aligned themselves with David? And nobody raises their hand because everybody knows you don't, you don't fight against a priest of the Lord. Everybody with the exception of Doeg. And Doeg goes and he takes the lives of all of the priests in Nob with one exception. Some people think that, that this is the circumstance uh, going on uh, in David's life when he writes this psalm. Others point to times later on in his life, after he's become king and he's reigned for a period of years. Remember later on in David's life, he has to flee or he has to, uh, to deal with problems from his own family. Two of his sons, Absalom and Adonijah, tried to usurp the throne and take it for themselves. Some people think that this was a psalm that David may have written when he was on his way out of Jerusalem running from Absalom for a period of time. I think the great thing about this psalm is that we don't really know. And because of the, the ambiguity of this, really what it tells us is that this is something that was true in David's life about his perspective throughout his life. No matter what crisis he was facing, no matter when his foundations were threatened, his decision consistently throughout his life was to seek refuge from the Lord. And because of that, I think this psalm has a universal appeal to us. There are a number of reasons in our lives that we might look around and, and think of our foundations as being threatened. Uh, all those things I mentioned earlier, maybe it's we look around at the landscape of the nation. We look around at the, the moral condition of the world. We look around even at our own lives. We lose someone close to us. We lose a job. Some other, some, something else happens in your life that takes everything and, and just kind of throws it up in the air. And you're left trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together. A psalm like this has a universal appeal, or it ought to, to all of us. And so David's answer in light of this counsel is one that demonstrates great faith. And we'll talk about why David is able to say this when everybody else around him is saying, David, get out of here, flee as a bird to your mountain. Uh, and it has everything to do with the perspective that David had that we're going to notice beginning in verse 4. But before we do that, I just want to ask you uh, one more question about verse 3. Does verse 3 sound familiar to anyone? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Do you ever hear Christians talking like that these days? If you listen close enough, I guarantee. I mean, if you, if you spend any amount of time on Facebook for very long, 
you'll see, and usually a lot of times it happens around election season. You know, we just got done with midterm elections. And invariably what happens whenever we're electing uh, officials is that we'll look around at the landscape of the world and based on the results of that, people will say, man, it sure looks like our country is doomed. Do you ever hear people talk like that? It, it sure looks like the direction of our country is we just keep getting more and more immoral, more and more worldly. Things are, are just darker and darker. So what do, what do God's people do in a situation like that? What do we do when we're surrounded by that kind of thing and it just seems like it's not, it's just getting worse? So whether it's dealing with politics or elections or it's dealing with immorality that's rampant in the world around us, or maybe it's even, like I mentioned, personal to you. You experience some sort of loss or tragedy in your life and so you ask a question like, what am I supposed to do now that the foundations of my life have been destroyed? So David's going to teach us some things about this. And really it has to do with his perspective, uh, a, pers a spiritual perspective that gave him confidence and hope. So the question we're going to try to answer tonight in the rest of our time together is, how can we respond like David did? How can we develop the perspective that David had so that we can have the confidence and the hope that David had whenever we find ourselves in circumstances where our foundations are crumbling? Uh, what are the options that are available for us? You know, there are a couple of them that David is encouraged to seek here, and, and I think there are, they represent things that we may do at times. Uh, one potential response is to run away. Whenever there's something in our lives going on that's causing, us, it's causing our foundation to be shaken, one response is to flee as a bird. Um, I, I don't want to make this, this is not political, uh, I, and I don't want to dwell on that, but as an illustration, that's one of the things that people, one of the ways people will talk whenever they're worried about the results of an election. Uh, when we lived in Minnesota, we noticed that this happened a lot because we, we were basically next door neighbors to Canada. You know, you could drive three or four hours and be in a different country. And so people would literally say, if so-and-so is elected, man, I'm just getting in my car and I'm driving across the border. <laughs> I'm just going to flee as a bird, essentially. I, I don't, I don't want to stay in this situation. I don't want to deal with foundations that are crumbling. And so my response to that is I'm just going to check out. I'm going to get away. I'm going to flee. Now, maybe you've never been tempted to do that as a result of an election, but have you ever been tempted to do that as you look around at the world and you see the wickedness of, of people? Have you ever been tempted, and maybe you, you don't say literally, I'm just going to move my family and kind of go off into solitude and we're going to build our own compound and isolate and nobody's going to get anywhere close to us. Maybe you're not thinking along those lines. But is that sometimes a temptation even just internally, mentally? If the world is, is going to be the way that it is, then I'm just going to distance myself from it. And I'll live in it, and I'll work in it, and I'll go about my business, but I don't really want to have any part of it. There's a tension that is a very real tension that Christians deal with because we're called to be separate from the world, and yet at the same time, we're also called to be salt and light in the world. And, 
and so one of the, if, if the temptation is we, we just check out and we flee from the crumbling foundations around us or the crumbling morals around us, it, the temptation is withdrawal. The problem with that is that we lose that purpose. How can we be salt? How can we be light if we do what was counseled here for David and we just run away? The other thing that plays into this is in this statement that David is counseled to flee as a bird to your mountain. And what I think that represents is the idea that they wanted him to seek refuge in something other than God, whether that was a physical mountain or, or it was representative, whatever the case is, sometimes our response to crumbling foundations or to the world around us, it's not that we, that we check out. It's not that we distance ourselves, but it's that we just look for refuge somewhere else other than the Lord. Uh, we may look for refuge, let's just say for a moment, things in your life, in your family life, those foundations are crumbling. Sometimes what people do with that is they say, if my family life isn't, go isn't going well, then I'm going to seek refuge in my job. Or they flip the, the script. My job's not going well, so I'm going to seek refuge in my family. Or some other refuge that people go to. Maybe it's to some sort of substance. It's to drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's to recreation and leisure. Maybe it's to some sort of addiction to pornography. But there are so many things that the world offers us as potential mountains in which to find refuge. And I think that that is one of the responses that we can choose, but it's one of the ones that David refused to choose. And that's instructive for us. And then, of course, the other potential response, and I think David shows the right response, is to trust God. That instead of trying to run away, instead of trying to to abdicate our role as salt and light in the world, instead of looking to refuge, looking for refuge in something other than God, we take refuge in the Lord. And that was David's perspective. <clears throat> now, this brings us back to this question, what was it that allowed David to have that perspective? So we're going to notice that the rest of this text teaches us it was about, it was, it had everything to do with how David viewed God. Viewed God excuse me. Um, so let's continue the reading in verse 4. And what I want you to notice here is, uh, as we look at how David viewed God, is that there were two things about God that David paid attention to and that David thought about. One is God's position, and one is God's character. Look for those two things in the rest of this psalm. Psalm 11, verse 4, continuing, David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness the upright will behold his face. So these are the things that David focused on from God that allowed him to take refuge in the Lord. The first is this idea of God's position. He mentions in verse four that the Lord, first of all, is in his holy temple. So 
I want you to think for a moment about whenever foundations crumble in our lives, whenever there's some sort of broad failure in the world that we see, or whenever there's some sort of individual failure in our own lives that we see, oftentimes the questions that we ask are, number one, if the failure is personal, can God fix me? If the failure is broad, then the question might be, can God fix all of this around me? And this first picture of God that David had, I think, deals with this idea of personal failure. When we think about the picture of God in his temple, what would that have represented to someone like David? What would it have represented to, uh, to a Jew? The presence of God in the temple or the picture of God in the temple was, of course, a picture of intercession. It was a picture of presence. It was a picture of covenant loyalty. The temple and the tabernacle before it were all about God indicating to his people that he was there with them, that they were his people, that he was their God, that they had intercession. It was where they would go to make sure that they were right in their covenant relationship with God. And so it was a very visual reminder to them that God was loyal to keep his promises. Now, what's remarkable about this is think about who's saying this. This is David. He's saying this before there was even such a thing as the temple. David is the one that wanted to build it, but of course, we know he wasn't the one who was actually able to build it. In David's lifetime, there was no temple in Jerusalem. There was a tabernacle. But it's interesting that David still had this picture of God in his holy temple. And I think that shows us what David knew is that God was present with the righteous that God interceded with the righteous, God was loyal to the righteous, whether there was a temple or a tabernacle or not. And even when things in his life looked dim, even when he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he had confidence that God was with him, that God was preparing a table in his presence, that God was interceding for him, and God was going to keep his promises. So that's the idea of this picture of God being in his holy temple. The second picture that David uh, mentions related to God's position is that he sees God not only in the temple, but on his throne. And if, if the temple represents the presence of God and the loyalty and the intercession of God, what do you think the throne represents? It represents the idea that God is in power, that God reigns, that God is in control. And when you zoom out from David's life and you look at the bigger picture of, of Israel's history, how often was this a message that God was trying to communicate to his people? I mean, you go back even to Exodus. The whole idea behind the 10 plagues, it wasn't just to bail Israel out of Egyptian bondage, but it was to make it very clear in that process that God was really on the throne. That even though Pharaoh was hardening his heart and saying, I'm not going to let Israel go, compared to God, Pharaoh was not the one in power. Or you fast forward to the days of Babylonian captivity and think about a book like Daniel. How many of the images and the events that take place in the book of Daniel are designed to show us, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar may be sitting on a throne in Babylon, but who's really in control of things? Who's, who's really even allowing this to happen in the first place? God is the one behind it. 
He's the one who's reigning. He's the one who's in power. And then even fast forward to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, to a time when Christians looked around and what looked like their reality was that Rome was on the throne. Caesar was in power. He was the one that was reigning. And how many pictures in Revelation does John see of God being the one on the throne? Caesar's not the power here. He's not the one who has authority and sovereignty. God's the one behind all of that. And so God would constantly give his people pictures like this that were intended to remind them that no matter what the landscape right in front of you looks like, just remember who's really in control of of things. So David saw God's position, that God was in his temple and that God was on his throne. And I want you to notice what this enabled David to to see or how how it enabled him to think about this trial. In verse five, you notice what he says? The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Because David understood that God was present, that he was interceding, that he was loyal, that he was powerful, that he was on the throne, whenever David's foundations were shaken, instead of throwing up his hands and saying, I guess this is it, what it allowed him to do was to see this as a test from God. Think about what a difference that would make in each of our lives. If whenever something happens in your life that makes you wonder, how am I ever going to get through this? Instead of despairing, your perspective on it was, listen, I know that this is just a test and it's not easy. It's really difficult, but it's just a test. It's temporary and I'm going to get through it. And that was the perspective that David was able to have because of the position that God had in his heart. Now, the second thing that David focused on and that he reveals in this psalm is God's character. There are two things about God's character that I want to draw your attention to. The first one is in verse 6. Or actually, I'm sorry. um, Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold his eyelids test the sons of men. What David understood about God is that God saw what was going on. Now, here's the contrast. If you go back up to verse two and notice the description of the wicked, what they're trying to do, it says, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot when? In the darkness. Why do you suppose these wicked people who were surrounding David, maybe they had strength in numbers, they had weapons that they could use against David, but why are they doing this in darkness? Why does anybody do anything in darkness? If not to try to hide something that they know is not right. And yet that's what makes David's perspective so telling here is that David, even knowing that these people were trying to, whoever it was, were trying to do this in secret, He understood in verse 4 that they couldn't hide from God. Christian, do you believe that about the Lord? That no matter how bad things get in this world and no matter how many people give themselves over to Satan and letting him be Lord of their lives and, and how people treat you, do you believe that at the end of the day, God sees every bit of it? We say that, but do we really believe it? David did. So he believes that God sees, 
And he also believes that God acts. And this is, I think, one of the best things about this psalm. In verse 5 and verse 6, he tells us what God is going to do to the wicked. So get this picture in your mind. David is surrounded by all of these wicked people. They've drawn their bow, and they've got it ready to release the arrow, and that's going to be lights out for David. And so you just get this picture in your mind of David being surrounded. And then all of a sudden, God calls in the artillery from on high. Verse 6, upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. I mean, can you imagine just witnessing something like that? One man being surrounded by people who are ready to shoot, to fill his, his stomach with arrows. And then all of a sudden, all of this fire and brimstone just drops from heaven and destroys everybody. With the exception of the righteous man in the middle. And what's beautiful about this is it's not like this is even in David's mind like a, there's no contest here. This is like the biggest mismatch in all of history. You know, everybody thinks that they're going to be able to take out David, and David has every confidence that this isn't going to shake God one bit. What do you think of when you think of mismatches? And there's, there's one picture that comes to my mind more than any other, uh, and it comes from when I was a little kid. Uh, my younger brother did something. I don't know what he did, but he did something to get in trouble with my dad. So my dad uh, was, was back in our bedroom talking with my little brother, and I want you just to try to get a, a mental picture of this. Picture my dad sitting on our bed facing my little brother, who's probably like three or four. So my little brother's standing here facing my dad, and my dad's talking with him. And I, don't, I have no idea why, but for some reason, my little brother gets the bright idea to do this to my dad. Like he holds his fist up like he's going to fight my dad. And, you know, I was going, I was walking back to our bedroom to see what was going on. And my brother kind of came into view at that exact second where he pulled his fist up at my dad. And it was, I mean, when you talk about a mismatch, he had no sooner locked his fist than in one motion, my dad reached his hand out, grabbed my brother's fist, bent him over his lap and just started spanking him. And it was like the funniest thing that I had ever seen. <laughs> so, so, of course, I went running to tell my brother, my older brother, about what had happened. But that's what I think about when I think of, about a mismatch. And that's what I think David saw. It didn't matter who was pulling an arrow on him. It didn't matter what their plot or their plan was. He understood th there was no contest. There was nothing that they could do to God. By the way, I think that David believed that about God, whether he lived or not. Maybe somebody puts an arrow in his stomach. Maybe somebody cuts his head off with a sword. But what David believed in his heart is that that wasn't going to touch his relationship with God and the confidence and the hope that he had that God was going to take care of him and keep his promises no matter what happened to him in his flesh. And that's... I mean, that's the message of Scripture elsewhere. Think about Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? You know, they take the, the nations take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And in that psalm, remember what God's doing? He's sitting there in, on his throne in heaven, and he's laughing at them. Because God's made his choice. God's got his king. 
And no matter what the world may come up with as a, a, a response to that or in rebellion to that, God sees it, he acts on it, and it causes him no trouble whatsoever. So what I hope you'll see is what this perspective of God did for David. And what does it do for us? If we're willing to trust in God and make him our refuge, I think what it does is it frees us from having to put our trust or trying to put our trust in poor foundations, in anything else that the world is going to offer you that, that it's going to tell you, you can put your trust in this thing, you can build your life on this, and it'll stand, and you'll find peace and comfort. If we have the perspective that David had, we're never going to fall for that lie. And when we trust in the Lord for our refuge, what it frees us to do is it also frees us to simply work on our own response. You know, I asked you the question at the beginning of the lesson, the things that bother you in the world, how much can you really do about that? You know what we can do something about is we can do something about our response to all of that. And this is the picture of God that David had in his heart and his mind that allowed him to just focus on who he was and allowed him to reach the conclusion that if God is righteous in verse 7, and if he loves righteousness, then, and I want to behold his face, then I need to be upright. And that's true as much today as it's ever been. Let me just leave you with a couple of New Testament pictures of this principle at work as well. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to just notice briefly something that Paul told the young man, Timothy. <clears throat> We're going to focus on verse 19, but I want you to see the context of this in, starting in verse 14. It's 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Now notice verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. You get a sense in this for what people were doing around Timothy, what kinds of things he was hearing. And this is practical because this kind of stuff, these kinds of conversations happen all around us. And so much of the problem, whenever we start to see foundations crumble, is that a lot of times the response of the world, certainly, and sometimes even among God's people, is that our response to that is just to wrangle about words and to talk about things that does nothing other than lead to the ruin of the hearers. And so Paul's counsel to Timothy is don't get caught up in all of the discussions and all of the conversations that are happening in the world around you. Christian, don't get caught up in all of the things that people are talking about on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or, or wherever at the coffee shop. 
put your refuge in God and trust that this is the foundation. God knows those who belong to him. Even if the world is doing everything it can to cause you to try to get you to question that. And if you really want to be his, then the simple instruction to us is abstain from wickedness. If you want to name the name of the Lord, if you want him to be your foundation and your refuge, be righteous. Paul wasn't the only one that talked like that. Jesus talked like that in the text that we read a little bit earlier tonight in Matthew 7, 24. Just want you to think about this briefly. In verse 24, Jesus tells his audience, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he gives this illustration about two foundations. One is the rock, one is the sand. It's interesting to me that in, in either case in Matthew 7, both foundations were descriptive of people who heard the words of Jesus. The difference was, what are you going to do with those words? The people who built on the sand apparently heard, every, every, heard the same words of, that the people who built on the rock heard, but they just didn't do anything with it. And here's the reality of that illustration from Jesus. What it teaches us is it doesn't matter what foundation you build on, there are going to be, there, at some point in your life, you're going to have a storm that's going to come and test it. That's what storms do. They test foundations. And if we build on anything other than the words of Jesus, hearing them and acting on them, then the message of this is that every other foundation will fail. It's not a matter of if, it's not a matter of how long can I build on this foundation and get away with it. It's, it's a matter of when. And that's what we're called to do from this psalm, is to build on the right foundation, to, to put our trust in the Lord, to let him be our refuge, and to let that simply create in us this perspective of God that allows us to focus on not trying to fix everything about the world and what's wrong with it, but just trying to be the kind of people that God tells us to be. So tonight, what are you building your life on? Is the Lord really your refuge? Are you listening to the words of Jesus and acting on them, putting them into practice tonight when you go home, tomorrow when you go to work, when, you go, when you're back in the classroom at school, are you acting on the things that you hear from the Lord? Or are we just listening to them and then going about whatever other foundation we want to build on? There's an invitation that God gives us constantly, and it's available tonight, and the invitation is to build on something that's going to last. And if that's the choice that you want to make with your life, then you don't have to wait to do that. Part of why we gather together and we have invitations like this is just to stir each other up. While the word is in your ears, while it's in your mind and in your heart, don't wait. Don't take the chance that you're not going to be as excited about this or as stirred up about this in a day or a week or a month or a year. If you're stirred up and God is convicting you about changes you need to make in your life, do them tonight. Make your life right with the Lord. Put your trust in him and you'll never regret it. Maybe you need to become a Christian and everything's ready for you to die to yourself, 
to be washed in baptism and have your sins forgiven, you can do that tonight. If you have another spiritual need, then we want to help with that as well. But if we can serve you, if we can point you to the Lord and encourage you tonight, come to the front and let's stand and sing together.